Good morning. And let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. And as we talk about law today and your law today, may you give us wisdom to understand the true implications and how it impacts our lives. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And the lesson title in the quarterly teachings of Jesus is the law of God. And um, over the last few years, I've literally asked thousands of people, when you hear the word law, what comes to mind? And I can tell you almost exclusively the answer I get back is things like rules, regulations, ordinances. And then I follow up and say, what about God's law? And often the answer is, well, those are God's rules, God's regulations, God's ordinances. But is it really that way? Is it really that way? When I, something quite profound happens in the minds of people, you see a light kind of, you see a tension, you'll see some, some wheels starting to turn in their mind if you follow up immediately and say, well, what about the law of gravity? What about the laws of physics? What about the laws of health? And, and suddenly they're, they're starting to say, wait a minute, there's something different about that than rules and regulations. Uh, what is that? And you see some tension starting to build in their mind. It gives an opportunity to follow up. If you looked at the lesson for this week, what was the thrust, the main point that you, you heard in the lesson for this week? And keep the commandments. Keep the commandments, okay. Keep the commandments was, was a big thrust. And I think connected directly to that was the, the title of Sunday's lesson. Jesus did not change the law. The big thrust was, you know, the Ten Commandments and Jesus did not come to change the law. Have anybody ever heard that thrust given before? Well, think this through with me. Why is it necessary to make that point? Would they make an argument that Jesus did not come to change the law of gravity? Would they make the argument he didn't come to change the laws of health? He didn't come to change the laws of physics. So what's the implication what does it tell you where they're coming from? The landscape that they're, they're, they're standing upon when they make this argument. God's law has been imposed. They're standing on this idea of an imposed law, that God's law is very similar to ours. It's a list of rules, and it's being enforced by the, the ruling authority. And th- this is the view that has infected Christianity and has really affected everything we do. It comes down from Rome. This Roman infection, uh, God is like a dictator. The law of love is no longer considered to be the, the principles upon which life is, con- is created to operate. But this is not how the founding fathers of our church saw things. In the book, in the, in the Conflict of the Ages series, the very first words in the, the very first sentence in the series says this, God is love, his nature, his law is love. It ever has been and it ever will be. And then in the very last words, uh, five books later, which is how many thousands of pages later, the very last three words in the, in, the, in the great controversy, God is love. God is love is the first three words, and his law is love. It ever has been, ever, in the last three words. And then the Bible writers understood this. Romans 13.10, love does no harm to its neighbor, therefore love is fulfillment of the law. Or Galatians 5.14, the entire law summed up in a single command. What is that command? Love your neighbor as yourself. That's right. Jesus said the entire law summed up in love for God and love for our neighbors. This love is not a sentiment. I want you to get your mind around this. It's not a sentiment. It's not an emotion or not emotionalism. It's the very element, code, or principle that life is fabricated to operate upon. And again, in the, uh, our church used to present it this way. Christ's Object Lessons, page 258. In living for self... 
He has rejected the, that divine love which would have flowed out in mercy to his fellow man. Thus he has rejected life, for God is love and love is life. Or, Desire of Ages, page 21. But turning from all lesser representations, we behold God in Jesus. Looking into Jesus, we see that it is the glory of our God to give. The glory, you know, the glory of God. He, he glories in it. He relishes in it. He, he adores to give. This is who he is. This is his nature. The glory of God to give. I do nothing of myself, said Christ. The living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father. I seek not my own glory, but the glory of him that sent me. In these words is set forth the great principle, which is the law of life for the universe. All things Christ received from God, he took to give. But in the heavenly court, so in the heavenly courts, in his ministry for all created beings, through the beloved Son, the Father's life flows out to all. Through the Son it returns in praise and joyous service, a tide of love to the great source of all. And thus, through Christ, the circuit of beneficence is complete, representing the character of the great giver, the law of life. Do you understand what this is saying here? That God, who is love, this principle of beneficence, this principle of outward movement, this principle of giving, that when he went and built his universe, he actually constructed it to operate on this principle. Those are the protocols upon which life exists. Satan began a war in heaven. And one of the main focal points in the war was an attack on God's law. Now, can Satan actually change God's law? No. No. So how can he attack it? He can't change it. How can he attack it? Lie about it. Lie about it. That's right. By teaching God's law is something that it is not. Thus infecting the minds of intelligent beings with distortions about God's law and thus about God. And what did the evil one teach about God's law? Arbitrary. Arbitrary. Which means God's laws are the kinds of laws created beings make. Can you and I or even angels create the fabric of the cosmos? We can't do that. We can't create the laws upon which the universe exists. What kind of laws then we can created beings make? Imposed. Imposed rules. And so what Lucifer did is he alleges that God is no better than created beings, that God operates like we do, that God is just more powerful than us, Thus, he has more energy to enforce his rules, but he just makes rules like we do. This is the attack he made, that God's law is an imposed set of rules enforced by the cosmic enforcer. But when one understands that God's law, the design protocols for life, then you understand, well, if you deviate from that, that's not compatible with life. You're going to die. Thus, the wages of sin is... And if you're in that state, out of harmony with how life is designed, then what's required in that state... That the designer, the builder, the creator who, who has built life intervenes to restore you back into harmony, to fix the deviation, to fix what's broken, to restore us to life. This is what we understand the plan of salvation to be. That's not only love, but it's just. Yeah, that's not only love, but it's just. It's the right thing to do. It's the just thing to do. Well said, Russell. But deviations from imposed rules are not incompatible with life. And thus the idea under human, under our way of thinking, we project this on God, then it requires the ruling authority to inflict punishments. And and this punishment in this case is death, lest unpunished rebellion ensue. This is Satan's view of God. That God is no different than us. He makes up rules like we do and then inflicts punishments to enforce them. Again, this is what we used to teach in this church. This is out of Zyre of Ages 761. 
And notice, again, in the opening, it says, in the opening of the great controversy, Satan had declared that the law of God could not be obeyed, that justice was inconsistent with mercy, and that should the law be broken, it would be impossible for the sinner to be pardoned. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. God has to punish. He has to inflict. This is the idea that God's law requires some external punisher to come in. When mankind deviated from God's law, did God's law get changed? Did God get changed? Did man get changed? Then what would be the purpose of Christ coming to earth? To do something to assuage God? To fix him? To turn away his wrath? To do something to appease the law? To make a payment to the law? Or to do something actually in defective humanity to put humanity back in harmony with God's law? And that's why Christ spent the majority of his time healing. The majority of his ministry he spent healing. Why? What kind of law does health operate upon? Design law, natural law, not imposed rules. And thus, a doctor cannot get patients well in violations of the laws of health. A doctor has to intervene in the patient to move the patient back in harmony with the laws of health in order to restore healing. And thus you see Jesus intervening in people to restore in them, change them, to put them in harmony with the laws of health. The plan of salvation being acted out. No appeasement, no payment, no legal pardon is of any value without actually transforming the person to be in harmony with the design. It has no benefit. Thus we read in Hebrews 8.10, This is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. Where's the, where's the impact happening? In us, we're being regenerated, we're being recreated, we're being transformed. But Satan, after Christ's mission to earth, after Christ carried forth his, uh, his, his duties on earth to, it says in Hebrews 5, 8, 9, that once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. What does that mean, once he was made? Wasn't he always perfect? What do you understand that mean? Wasn't he, wasn't he always perfect? What's it mean, once he was made perfect? He was made complete. Say that, say, say that we're, in his human character. In his character, yes. Is there a difference between sinlessness and matured, settled character? Adam and Eve were made sinless. Can God, through an act of divine power, create mature character? No. He created abilities, he created them sinless, but they then had to exercise those abilities to develop their character. They chose to deviate from God's design and corrupted their character. Christ came, and with the exercise of his human nature, and how do we know it was his human nature, not his divine nature doing this? Because he was tempted. He was tempted, and James chapter 1 says, God, God cannot be tempted. But Christ was tempted, and he felt agony, and he suffered, and he was pulled with human emotion, and he exercised his human faculties to love and trust God perfectly. Thus he developed a perfect character. Yes? That's why the text in Hebrews says once he was made perfect through suffering. Yes. Because he suffered to eradicate the the nature, our nature to save self. That's right. It was no horrible suffering, more than we could imagine. And we see it in Gethsemane. Did Jesus experience powerful human emotions? And did those human emotions tempt him? This is did they? Yes. To do what? What was he tempted to do there? 
to save himself. The survival of the fittest drive was pulling at him. And, and this is what James says, everyone is tempted when they're drug away and enticed by their own desire. And, and Hebrews says he was tempted in every way just like we are yet without sin. And so you see this. Christ is being tempted by the nature that he assumed, but regardless of the strength of the temptation, he never gave in. He developed a perfect character. Okay, yes, you had a question, comment. Satan tried to prove that the law could not be obeyed because of, of Adam's fall. He said, see, it's proven. You can't keep the law. Adam couldn't keep the law. But Jesus came, the second Adam, to disprove Satan's claim. This is absolutely part of it as well. And then, so after Christ's victory and ascension to heaven, Satan counterattacks in the minds of men. Not in the minds of angels. Angels, remember, Christ said, if I, if I be lifted up, will drive, will call, will, will draw on to me, and uh, the, the prince of this world will be, will be cast out. You know, he's cast out from where? Where was he cast out from? Minds and hearts. He was cast out of the affections of the intelligent beings. You see in the, in the book of Job and other places that Satan had ability to go up there and present his ideas in heaven. But after what Christ did, there was no intelligent being outside planet Earth anymore that gave him any credit. It's like, talk to the hand, I'm not talking to you. I'm not listening to you anymore. So he, he was restricted here at Earth. Not restricted by a force shield that God put around Earth, but restricted by the free will choices of all the other intelligentsia in the universe that would no longer listen to him because they were one at the cross. However, on planet Earth, there's still a lot of minds that were not one. And so Satan then counterattacks. He counterattacks, and Paul tells about this in Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, where he says the man of sin is going to arise, that man of perdition. He's going to oppose God. He's going to set himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. What do you understand that to mean? Did he go up into heaven and knock Jesus off his throne up there and start ruling in heaven? Spirit temple. The spirit temple, that's right, in our minds. He said, now how would this man of sin, how would Satan counterattack and infect the spirit temple so that Satan actually reigns and sets himself up as God in our temple? How does he do that? Lies. Which lies particularly? This is the big one. This is what Rome did. That God's law is not the laws upon which life is created. It's not an expression of his character of love. God's law is like human law. It's a set of rules imposed. And therefore, God is viewed as this great dictator in the sky. Eusebius, the first Christian historian uh, from 263 to 339 CE, Common Era, wrote, with with the Roman Empire monarchy had come on earth, the image of the monarchy in heaven. In other words, they see that God's government ran like, like Roman government. And of course, that's evidence because did, the, did church committees sit down and vote to change the law of gravity? Why didn't they? Why would, why would a church committee never do that? Did they vote to change the Sabbath? What does that tell you about how they view the law? It's no longer designed. It's just a list of rules. They see it like Rome. And the ruling authority, whoever the authority is, now the church is the authority, we can change it. Because they, they view God's law like our law. And they've reduced God to nothing more than a being like us who can make up rules and then enforce it if you have enough power. And this idea of imposed law altered how Christians viewed God and altered how Christianity functioned. Prior to this, Christians functioned by communal living, self-sacrificial love, support of each other, dying as martyrs. But after this, that's when we have the Crusades, the Inquisition, burning dissenters at the stake, active participations in genocides all the way up till our own common era today with uh, Rwanda. Do you know the story? In Nazi Germany, Rwanda in Rwanda. 
you know that uh, Seventh-day Adventists were involved in that killing. Seventh-day Adventist pastors imprisoned for genocide, as well as Catholics and Methodists and Baptists and didn't matter denomination. The research in the aftermath showed denominational affiliation did not matter in whether you participated in genocide. Where it broke down was, was this. Those who, regardless of denomination, worshipped an authoritarian God participated in the genocide. Those who worshipped a God of love actually helped to try to protect the people, regardless of denomination. Exactly what we've been saying in here. So today we stand at the very precipice of eternity. And this, listen to this little one-sentence quote, or two-sentence quote, out of the Great Controversy, page 582. The last great conflict between truth and error is but the final struggle of the long-standing controversy concerning the law of God. Upon this battle we are now entering, a battle between the laws of men and the precepts of Jehovah, between the religion of the Bible and the religion of fable and tradition. How do you see God's law? Do you see him, you know, Revelation 14, we're called back to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the seas and springs of water. We're we're called to worship the designer, the creator, the builder of the cosmos, not the dictator. And Christianity has been infected with God, the dictator, and everything in Christianity has reacted to this. In fact, the world has reacted to it. So the question, talking about law, how do you see God's law? Wonderful. As a center of everything. Wonderful. As a center of everything. Any other comments? Any other questions? Any confusing points you have about the law before we move on? Standard to live by. Standard to live by. When you look at Jesus' life, we're talking about Jesus in the law. What did Jesus do 2,000 years ago on earth in relation to the law? He broke it. For the Jews. He didn't abide by their customs, and so he changed many of their practices. He cleansed the temple from buying and selling. He healed on Sabbath. His disciples pulled heads of grain on Sabbath. He uh, changed uh, the Passover to the Lord's Supper. He reinstituted, you know, kind of modified that to a new type of thing. He spoke to women and to Samaritan women at that. Uh, These weren't even Jewish women. He was speaking to Samaritan women. Uh, He associated with tax collectors and prostitutes. And you say, well, that's a big deal, really. Really? Think of that today. How about we have an evangelist come to town to do a seminar here in Chattanooga at the Tivoli? Big advertisement. And he he stays at the home of a prostitute while he's in town. Stays at her house in her guest bedroom. Would we all be comfortable with that? This is Jesus. He's staying at the home of Mary, Martha, and, and Lazarus. He's staying in her home. It was scandalous. I think we would have problems with that today. You don't think rumors would start? (laughs) But what was he actually doing? In all these examples I just gave you, what was he doing? He was operating on design law, law of love, and overthrowing and casting down arbitrary rules. That's what he was doing. His entire function was doing this. The Jews couldn't get their mind around it, though. Another point with your Mary, Martha, and Lazarus is that God works with us where we are. He works with us where we are, sure, absolutely. Meets us where we are. Boy, that opens up a whole nother beautiful dialogue. Do I want to go there? No, we won't. But it's a great, great point. Excellent point. Um, I've heard this idea about God's law being imposed, rules and regulations like humans do. Um, if, you, if you view it that way, then the argument is made. Have you ever heard this argument made? God made the Sabbath as a test of obedience. 
And nowhere do we find in Holy Scripture that God changed the sanctity from Sabbath to Sunday. The Sabbath is therefore still holy. We honor the day that God made holy. If God, however, would change the day from Sabbath to Sunday, then we would change because God would make the change and make it holy. But we won't change until God does. You ever heard that argument? Okay. What's the basic problem with that argument? God never changes. <laughs> what kind of law is it describing? Yes, it's just describing an arbitrary law. They argue from a human level of understanding that God's law is nothing more than a list of rules imposed by the ruler of the universe and a sovereign God has the right uh, to impose them and we're obliged to obey. And he also has the right to change them at his whim and if he wants to change it, we, he will and we'll just follow along. That's the way it works. The problem, of course, is God's ways are not our ways. His ways are higher than our ways. The Bible says that God never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Thus, his law can never be changed. Because if it were to change, just get your mind around this, if the law were to change, life would cease to exist. Matter would destabilize, galaxies would unravel, the integrity of molecular bonds would disintegrate, everything we know would be destroyed. When you understand God's law, or the rules, the, 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 the protocols, the design parameters that hold light, the, the reality together, you can't change it and have reality exist as it is. The Third paragraph says, It is important to understand that although Jesus criticized the openly legalistic practices of the Pharisees, he exalted the Ten Commandments, clearly affirming the perpetuity of the Decalogue and explaining its meaning and purpose. Christ himself said that he had, not, he had come to fulfill the law. Did Christ, did Jesus argue for the perpetuity of the Decalogue? In other words, the Ten Commandments. Did he argue for the eternal validity, if you will, the, the, the enforcement, the, the ruling power of the, of the Ten Commandments? He came to enlighten beyond. But he also said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Yes, and what was the commandment he gave them? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love, there you go. You see, get your mind around this. Commandments, plural. Do you, do you remember remember those those levels of of moral development we talked about earlier? When you're a child, you need the rules. When you're an adult and you understand how things are designed to operate, you don't need rules anymore. For instance, in America, how many volumes would it take to get a complete set of laws that govern the states and the country of this the, uh, federal and state laws? How many volumes would it take? And, and why are there so many different? Laws detailed down in all these little right. Why? Now, now, if on the other hand, somebody actually operates on this principle of loving God and others more than self, do you actually need a law not to murder them? Do you need a law not to sleep with their spouse? Do you need a law not to steal from them? Do you need to, if they actually truly operate where they love that other person more than self, do you need laws like this? No, you need laws like this when they're operating from self-centered and they're thinking constantly, what can I get away with? What can I do? How much can I get for me and not get in trouble? Then you have to write all these laws. That's the Old Testament. That's what you're seeing in the Levitical law. Why all these rules and spelled out in such infinite detail? Because they're thinking, okay, he said this, but uh, he didn't say that, so I can probably do that then. Yes? Well, a a good spot that actually clarifies what you're saying uh, in Jesus' time in Matthew 19, the rich young ruler man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? 
You know, why do you ask me what's good? Jesus Christ there's only one who's good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. So he said, of course, which ones? Jesus replied, don't murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, love your neighbors, yourself. So is the Ten Commandments, essentially. All these I've kept, the young man said, what do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. So Jesus is explaining, yes, the Ten Commandments kind of lay out how you love each other. And though the rich young ruler thought that he was already doing that, Jesus pointed out to the, the gem in his life that proved that he really didn't love others more than himself. What do you think would happen if Jesus would have suggested to them that the Ten Commandments are temporary and not eternal? What do you think would have happened? Now, he was questioning things, he, he was questioning things like their divorce writs, the Corban and some of their traditions, uh, uh, how far they can walk on Sabbath, and they were ready to stone. What would he have done if he... Now, what about even in our church today? If someone, like maybe myself, got up and suggested that the Ten Commandments are temporary, they're not eternal, did people get uncomfortable with that? Can't trust that. Well, let's, 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 let's ask the question. Are the Ten Commandments written on stone eternal or temporary? Eternal. What evidence do we have for or against? There was no need for a son. He was the light that lights the earth when he lives here. So how would you even know when lunarly and sun-wise anything ever happened? So she's talking about the Sabbath commandment. Could we even measure a Sabbath before this earth was created and this earth in rotation to a sun that wasn't created today for of creation of this planet? So there was no way to even measure a Sabbath until this planet was created. So the, the fourth commandment didn't exist until this planet was created. And there's a reason it didn't exist. Why didn't exist until this? Why did not God create a Sabbath before this? It wasn't needed because what hadn't happened yet in the universe until? There was no question of God's authority, no question of God's method, no question of God's design. And so the Sabbath is part of the answer to answer the allegations of Satan about how God operates. And what we see in the Sabbath is God says, hey, universe, take 24 hours aside, I rest my case. Truth presented in love, leave you free. Um, Day one through six, yeah, if I got power, but what you learn on day seven? I don't coerce with my power. I leave you free. And so the Sabbath was created to reveal God is actually a God of love. Satan lied. wasn't needed until this. What about prior to human existence, back in eternity past? Did the angels need a law to honor their mothers and fathers? Exactly. Wouldn't make any sense at all, would it? Wasn't necessary. How about did angels need a law that sins would pass down from the thir- to the third and fourth generation? There were no third and fourth. There were no third and fourth. You see, this this Ten Commandment law that we have was not eternal. It was a temporary emergency measure in, uh, in, introduced by God, and I'm going to give you some scripture for it in a moment to show you, for our need. It's a revelation of the eternal, but it in itself is not eternal. It's, it's guidelines to use while the earth is still in existence until the earth is redeemed. The Ten Commandments specifically are an adaptation, as Russell's saying, of the eternal law of love, specifically adapted and codified for sinful mankind. Right. Adam and Eve and Eden didn't need this either. This is for sin. This is our sinful need. So we have in Romans 5.20, it says the following, the law was added so that trespass might increase. The law was added so that trespass... Which law exposes sin? The Ten Commandment law. Why was it necessary to add it so that we could have it exposed? 
Because what does sin do to the mind? Sears the conscience, warps the character, damages the reason, it dulls you, it, it obstructs your perceptions and abilities to tell right from wrong. And so as you participate in sin, you lose the ability to tell what's right and wrong. And so the law was necessary as a diagnostic instrument to expose sin, to reveal the defects in us. That's why it uses the metaphor of a mirror. We look into the perfect mirror of the law to find out what's wrong. Yes? Before the law was made in the table of stone in Mount Sinai, what did the people back during Abraham's time and stuff use for the law? Yeah, that's a, it was passed down, talk, I mean, like the Ten Commandments law. What did they use back then? Could we maybe modify our statement that the Ten Commandments, instead of being eternal or temporary, the formulation of the Ten Commandments may be temporary. The principles behind is eternal. That's what we're saying, yes. This is what, yes, thank you for saying that. If I didn't say that, then thank you for clarifying that, because I thought that's what we're saying. The law of love, the principles, the design, God's character eternal. But this codification for our need was implemented. So thank you for that. Um, I don't, I don't have the quote, but there's a, I don't, I can't find it at this moment, because my notes are too extensive. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. They're only 18 pages long. Um, but, uh, the quote, the quote is that if, if man would have kept the law of God in mind as given to Adam, and handed down to the patriarchs, there had been no need for the ordinance of circumcision. And if man would kept the law of God in mind that circumcision was designed to teach, there would have been no need for it to be written on stone. And if they kept in mind what, what the Ten Commandments were designed to teach, there would have been no need for the added ordinances. This is, what, this is a quote from Ellen White. And so this, this, this law of God passed down was the design law of love as he described things to operate. And and they lost sight of this. And so the ordinance of circumcision, what was it designed to teach? How does that teach God's law? <laughs> yes, go ahead. Unselfishness, the principle of God's kingdom, is the principle that Satan hates. Its very existence he denies. From the beginning of the great controversy, he has endeavored to prove God's principles of action to be selfish. And he deals in the same way with all who serve God. To disprove Satan's claim is the work of Christ and of all who bear his name. Education, page 154. Well said. That's exactly right. So a couple other passages from Scripture. This is out of Galatians 3.19. What then is the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgression until the seed to whom the the promise referred had come. This was an argument in our early part of our church. Well, some argued that was the ceremonial law that was added. Uh, others said, no, that was the Ten Commandment law. This is, um, uh, let me give you a quote here from Timothy, and see, see if this helps uh, you clarify. First Timothy 1, 8 through 11. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebels for the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which he has entrusted to me. Which law do you think is given for the murderers and rebels? You see, it says it's not for the righteous. Is the law of love not for the righteous? Do the righteous not have to love and, and, and God and, and, and others as themselves? Or is that law for the righteous? So which law would not be for the righteous? 
thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, because they are already loving God and others more than self. They're already doing these things. You don't have to tell your six-year-old going to first grade, hey, hey Johnny, be sure not to kill anybody on the playground today. It's not for them. They don't need that. If they do, you've got a problem. See, the, the law that says don't do all this is for these people who's actually in character want to do these things. And so, oh, here's the quote that I was going to, Patriarchs and Prophets 364. It says, if man had kept the law of God as given to Adam after his fall, preserved by Noah and observed by Abraham, there would have been no necessity of the ordinance of circumcision. And if the descendants of Abraham had kept the covenant for which circumcision was a sign, they would never have been seduced into idolatry, nor would they have been necessary for them to suffer life of bondage in Egypt. They would have kept God's law in mind, and there would have been no necessity for it to be proclaimed from Sinai or engraved upon the tables of stone. And had the people practiced the principles, the principles of the Ten Commandments, there would have been no need for the added directions given to Moses. So, and then here's the quote I was going to tell you from First Select Messages 233, back written in about the 1880s, uh, clarifying the question. The law that was added, that, that Paul says was added, which one was it, according to Ellen White anyway? I'm asked concerning the law in Galatians. What law is the schoolmaster to bring us to Christ? I answer both the ceremonial and the moral code of the Ten Commandments. The law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that he might be justified by faith. In the scripture, the Holy Spirit, through the apostle, was speaking especially of the moral law. The Ten Commandments. So this is the point we're making here, is that God's eternal law are the design protocols upon which life is built. There's no addition to that. However, man in sin didn't understand this anymore. So God in love steps down and meets him and provides these other ways of helping to communicate. Just like a parent with a three-year-old might give a three-year-old a rule, you must brush your teeth, or thou shalt not go to bed without brushing thy teeth. Okay? But never has to say that to an adult. There's no reason for that. And so the Ten Commandments are added in mercy to diagnose and to lead us back to Christ. This is an interesting quote out of Mount of Blessing 109. But in heaven, service is not rendered in the spirit of legality. When Satan rebelled against the law of Jehovah, the thought that there was a law came to the angels almost as an awakening of something unthought of. In their ministry, the angels are not servants, but as sons. There is perfect unity between them and their creator. Obedience to them is no drudgery. How do you understand that? Was there a law in heaven? Absolutely. But it came to them something that's unthought of. How could that be? If I were to say to you, it is a law that you should not jab a pencil in your eye. Thou shalt not jab a pencil in your eye. Might you say to me, well, you know what? I never considered that a law. I never considered that a law. Huh, that never occurred to me to be a law. Why? Why did that never occur to you? Did, did you ever think, well, there's a rule. There's a, there's a law. I better not do that. Did that ever really occur to you? That's really un- unoccurred. I didn't thought. Why? Because you understand that to do that is damaging and destructive. When you understand God's law or the designs upon which life is built, then you understand that every deviation is like that. It's damaging and destructive to the deviant. Sears the conscience, warps the character, corrupts the, the individual. You can't deviate from God's design without injury. Yes. Many of these things are done for our protection because we are damaged in our understanding. Absolutely. I have patients who do jab pencils into their eye, who do bite themselves so severely that it causes them harm. And we have to do restrictive laws that protect them from doing damage themselves. Yes. In the same way, God has given us certain protective things to keep us from doing damage to ourselves until we can realize things. 
Now, some of these damaged people will never be able to come to that until they are healed in a miraculous way. This is, this is well said, Wendell. So some people, like you're describing, actually do need a rule not to jab their pencil in their eye. But for those of us, if we were to set that up and go, man, it never occurred to me that we needed a law like that. That never really, it never crossed my mind. Why would it never cross our mind? Because we're operating on a level that, it, that we're just automatically living in harmony with those principles. This is the angels in heaven. They're operating in harmony with God's design. And these laws is written for the sinful. I never thought of that. Well, yeah, that, that type of living is natural. Yeah. And as we are transitioned, it will become natural for us. And there was another hand somewhere? Yes. I remember, Tim, one time when our when our kids were younger, they had a playmate come over one time to our house, and and we had had supper, and afterwards the kids got up from the table, and I remember the friend saying to one of the boys, um, well, what are the rules here? And I remember them kind of looking at each other and not knowing what to say, not really n- knowing what the rules were, but yet operating within them, like you say, automatically. Excellent, excellent. I've often thought about that with the angels in heaven and hell. Yeah, yeah. They didn't need a rule in your house not to get in the alcohol, did they? (laughs) You know, some families need that rule, don't they? But you don't have it, you don't need the rule, do you? It's like, it never occurred to us, it's not there. In Sunday's lesson... Third paragraph, the fact that Christ himself gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai makes it even more important for us to take it seriously. Also, if the lawgiver himself further explained it through his teachings, as we find in the Gospels, we would do well to obey that law. One would be hard-pressed to find in the life and teachings of Jesus anything implying that the Ten Commandments are not binding on Christians. Binding. Binding. When you hear that word... What does that word mean to you? Binding. Restricting. They're binding on you. I actually looked it up in the dictionary, and the word binding means imposing an obligation. This contract is legally binding. They agree to binding arbitration. Hmm. Is this how God's law works? He's imposed it, and, he, and you're bound by it. He's, you're under the authority and the, and the binding restrictions of this law. Is that how it works? Imposed. It's not how it works, and it's not what he taught. They're saying that this is what he taught. That's why I'm pointing it out, so we can challenge it and maybe come to a different way of seeing it. What's, first off, what's the problem? If we present God's law like this, a binding law by the ruling authority that is enforced upon us, very, very many damaging consequences happen. One, we misrepresent God and undermine trust in him. Such rebellion. Obedience under such condition actually stems uh, from fear, and incites, as Russell says, rebellion. People will eventually rebel against it. It leads to legalism in our theology. Thus, the Jews in Christ's day, who operated very much like this, had a Sabbath rule that you could not walk more than a half mile from home. However, if you had a second home within that half mile, you could walk to that second home, and then you could walk another half mile from that home. Then the question became, well, what constitutes a second home? Anywhere where you had lunch the day before could be considered a second home. So if you wanted to walk to Uncle Joe's house, which was several miles away, as long as you went and dropped a lunch every half mile, then you could walk every half mile to your second home and, and then keep walking on. But if you didn't drop the lunch, then you can't walk to Uncle Joe's home five miles away. We but don't we do the same, similar things today? You can't swim on Sabbath. Any positive buoyancy is... It's a sin, but if your feet are on the ground, you're okay. I mean, we do the same thing today. We do. Sometimes we do. This is what we're wanting to challenge, moving from from rules to principles. Yes. It is interesting that many of the rabbinical laws were only for the 
low classes. If you were a rabbi, you knew enough to get around it. There you go. That's why we have to be careful that we don't make rules that apply only to the low class. <laughs> the uneducated, you mean. Because there is a principle yes. which cannot be avoided by any class. There was another rule they had. If you're traveling on Friday with your donkey and the Sabbath arrives, and you, before you take the burden off your donkey, that you are not allowed to remove the burden on Sabbath. But your donkey could die. But you could loosen the straps and allow whatever gravity has to fall off, fall off, but you couldn't lift the burden off. <laughs> if a Gentile comes, and the, the Gentile can remove the burden from the donkey, but you are not allowed to ask or indicate in any way that you need him to do so. And so if the Gentile does come along and sees this burden on your donkey and you and then lifts it off for you, then you spend your Sabbath wondering, did I, in my 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 anxiety on my face, my stress, communicate that I needed him? Now I've, I've put him in this burden and I'm now guilty of breaking the Sabbath? What what joy that must have been. You know, we, yes. we think of this being back in Bible times, but my dad used to recount a story. He grew up in San Francisco and he had a group of Jewish neighbors around him. And the kids would come to him on the Sabbath and, and, and pay him to turn the radio on. Because they could listen to the radio, but they, they couldn't do the act of turning the radio on. So he would get paid and he turned the radio on. When I was in residency, I was in uh, my surgical rotation with an Orthodox Jewish gentleman, and he was a really good friend. We got along very well. And we came out of surgery one Friday night, and it was Sabbath had, had come during the time we were in surgery. We came to the doctor's lounge. The TV was on, but it wasn't on the channel with the Memphis State basketball game, and he was a big Memphis State basketball fan. And so he asked me to turn the channel for him because he could he could fill his mind with very worldly things on Sabbath, but he couldn't turn the channel to start a spark, which would be starting a fire on Sabbath. Yeah. <laughs> we have a, 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 a stove that has a, a, a oven that has a Sabbath mode. Yeah, my mm-hmm. The Sabbath mode in your oven. Yeah, so it'll spark for you. You don't have to turn it on on your own. Yeah. All right. So all of this, all of this type of thinking leads to view God as an arbitrary dictator with just a bunch of rules that make no sense and, if, and you live in fear of stepping out of line lest you get punished. Yes. Okay. So we, if you've grown up an Adventist, you know what those things were and, and the changes that have happened. Okay, let's bring it to today and say... The same principle, how to apply it. Okay, one that is very uh, disagreed upon is going out to eat on Sabbath. Oh, you're making somebody else work then, or whatever. So how do you apply this principle? Because it gets really sticky for people, and there's a lot of opinions. Paul, Paul, I think, uh, made that very clear for us in Romans chapter 14. It says, one man regards one day as holy, another man another day. Let every person be fully persuaded in their own mind that I can't decide for you how you should behave on Sabbath. I can tell you that the principle of the Bible is that if you are keeping all the rules, you've got your TV off before sunset, you've got everything dusted and vacuumed, you've got your bathrooms cleaned, you've, you've put every, all the clothes away, everything's settled, uh, you guard the edges of the Sabbath, you don't do any work, you don't go out to eat, everything's like this, but you don't actually enjoy it. There's no joy in your heart. Then you're not a Sabbath keeper because Isaiah says that you must call the Sabbath a delight. And this would be like telling a little boy that you must eat your spinach and you must enjoy it. I really like that because like, I can remember back in college having a professor that would not 
put a potato in the oven to bake on Sabbath. It had, unless, maybe if it was on pre no, it couldn't be in the oven. It could only be warmed, this sort of thing. How far have we gone? That brings me to another question. So, so, but the, the, I think there are a lot of people. Remember those six, seven levels we went through a couple of weeks ago or last week? There are people operating on some of these very low levels of understanding, and they're living up to the light or comprehension they're capable of. Their heart means well, but they're not actually operating on principle. They're operating on rules. I really like that when you say that about how we make choices and that we don't sit in judgment and that someone may totally disagree with what I choose to do on Sabbath or do not choose to do. I really like that. Um, but the other question I had was I can remember in first and second grade being very, you know, we were taught to memorize the Ten Commandments and write them. Um, would you view that as good Bible teaching or as... Uh, teaching law. Don't step over this line here. You know, I find the memorization of Scripture a very helpful thing. Um, but memorizing it alone, is it, it provides a database from which one can draw. If you don't have the database, then you can't actually process the information. But memorization alone is, is, not, is not beneficial if you don't take the next step and, and start processing it. Okay, what does this mean? How does this fit together? What, 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 what impact does this have on my life? How do I apply it to my life? You have to take it beyond just memorization. If we just memorize, and that's all we ever do, then it really doesn't have much of a transforming power on us. I can tell you, as a child, I did a lot of memorization. And I'm glad I did a lot of memorization today, because now I have a pretty good data set that I can draw from when I start processing. Think. My brain finally kicked on, I can start thinking. I go, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, and I have all this data in there to think. But if I'd never memorized or had been exposed to any of these stories, then I really am kind of you know, blank and don't have anything to draw from. So the memorization can be good, but alone it's not sufficient. Does that help? Okay. Um, I, remember the Sabbath. Might it also have been said, remember the day I made when I rested and gave you a choice. Yeah, well said. Well said. So back to this thing. So back to this idea of binding, because there is a way to understand it, I think. If we present this idea of the, the law as binding in the same way that we say the law of gravity is binding. Is the law of gravity binding on everybody in this room? Yes. yes. Absolutely. Or the laws of physics or the laws of health. Then the problems all evaporate. They all evaporate. There are no loopholes, as Leon was saying around you. You can't loophole your way around the law of gravity. It doesn't matter whether you are high or low on the totem pole. You step off a bridge, you get the same result. Okay, there's no loopholes here. You can't cheat it. And this is not just for the law of gravity of stepping off a bridge. It's also for shooting up IV heroin or cheating on your spouse or stealing from your employer. All violations of the design law result in damage to the one in violation. You, no loopholes. The only option then is healing, recreation, restoration to God's ideal, which is God's plan of salvation. His plan to take broken, deformed, defective beings out of harmony with the design and write the law in the heart and mind and put us back in harmony. That's his plan. Uh, Monday's lesson says, uh, After establishing the perpetuity of the Ten Commandments, Jesus continued his Sermon on the Mount, now setting forth a few examples in the Old Testament laws. Again, did Jesus establish the perpetuity of the Ten Commandments or the per- perpetuity of God's law of love? Which, which did he establish? God's law of love is what he established. He makes it pretty clear the way he handles it. But the, um, as the lesson goes through, the, see, there's a last paragraph has in, this, in it this sentence. Law keeping in and of itself as an end to itself 
leads to nothing but death if the law is not understood as an expression of what it means to be saved by grace. I heard this, I don't know how you heard it, but it sounds to me like they're still talking about imposed rules. See, how would you hear the sentence, law-keeping in and of itself leads to death with these Bible passages now? Proverbs 12.28 says the following. In the way of righteousness, there is life. Along that path is immortality. Or Proverbs 21.21. He who pursues righteousness and love finds life. Or Psalms 19.7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. I'll give you an example. I think we did this before, but remember God's design law, law of giving, that we use the law of respiration. You give away carbon dioxide to the plants, the plants get back oxygen to you. If you tie a plastic bag over your head, a big old hefty bag, and tape it really tight, you're now in violation of the law. You're transgressing the law. You're selfishly hoarding carbon dioxide to yourself. And what begins to happen? You'll start having symptoms of this. You'll get lightheaded. Your fingers and nose will start tingling. You'll start getting weak and confused. You'll, you'll eventually maybe hallucinate, pass out, and eventually die. What happens b- before death? Any time before death, if we intervene and remove the bag and put you in harmony with the law, what will happen? What will you do? You will revive. You will revive. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Okay? So this idea that law-keeping leads to death, it's Satan's view of God's law. This is not true. Living in harmony with God's law is the path of righteousness, the path of life. It helps you understand why David went on and on and on and on about it in the Psalms, how he loved the law, liked to think about the law day and night and so on. And if you just have the understanding of a bunch of rules, it's hard to imagine David delighting in like, okay. So operating on a, exactly. So operating on a system of rules, they know that keeping rules can't save us. But in their model, they have a solution. The rules also require perfect sacrifice to pay the legal penalty, and thus we must have God's grace send Jesus to die to pay our penalty. Then we can have our records adjusted to say that we are pardoned or righteous or innocent, and thus we are legally saved. And it's all legalism. It's all false, all man-made, based on Rome's infection to God's design. No healing. No healing. So imagine this metaphor. I'm going to give a metaphor, guys. Imagine this metaphor. I'm going to apply it. Imagine the entire world is infected with tuberculosis. Every human being infected with tuberculosis. Everyone is sick and dying, coughing, fever, fatigue, spitting up blood. There's a religious group who realizes that this is not how God designed things. And they teach that God will one day destroy all disease. Therefore, God keeps careful records recording every slight defect, every cough, every fever, every spitting up of blood. And when he returns, he will investigate every case. And if you don't have a clean record, he will destroy you because he must destroy all defects, all disease. So this group teaches that God sent a son who was tuberculosis free. And his record is free of any defect or symptoms of sickness. And if we accept him as our personal savior, he will photocopy Jesus' medical records and put it in our chart. And when God investigates our record, he will only find a record of perfect health, no record of, of, of any evidence of sickness, symptoms, or defects. I don't think God is that stupid. But all the people, <laughs> but all the people who rely on this method are not actually taking their tuberculosis meds. Thus, they continue to have cough, fever, spitting up blood, just like those people who don't belong to this religious group and don't claim Jesus' records applied to theirs. What's the application? In Christianity today, 
there is in Christianity, Christian churches today, there's just as much addiction, pornography, domestic violence, child abuse, teen pregnancy, as in non-Christian homes. Why? Because God's plan to heal the heart, mind, and character, to restore his design into the person, has been replaced with a false legal lie that our problem is in our legal standing before God and what is written in our heavenly records. And the solution is to have the blood of Jesus applied to our records in heaven. Thus we claim the blood to get legal pardon, but don't partake the remedy to actually get well. That's the problem. And that's why Christ hasn't returned. Because he's waiting. It says in 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 Peter that he's waiting because he doesn't want any to be lost, but all to come to salvation. And he knows if he came, there's so many who could still be to get well, could be transformed, could be healed, could be regenerated, could have the mind of Christ, could have the law written in the heart and mind, could have the circumstances of the heart by the Spirit. They could if they would, but they don't even know they need it because they've got a false security based on the fact that they've accepted Jesus as their Savior and all their sins, past, present, and future have been paid at the cross and, and they've got legal pardon stand by their name. And they come to see me in my office struggling because they have all these problems because there's no peace in their life. Yeah, I saw a hand. Wendell. The plan of salvation is not about me. It's about God. It's, it's him and his character. That's right. You know, it's not about me. You know? No, this is well said as well. This is absolutely well said. It says in Ezekiel that he will take out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh that he, his glory might be revealed, that he may be revealed as righteous, that uh, he may be seen as, as right when he makes right those who are. Do your good deeds before men so they may praise God. Exactly. So what Jesus settled in the minds of angels at the cross we're to settle at the end of time before men, right? Each individual themselves, and then we become witnesses to make a clear distinction between two methodologies, those that operate on an opposed system. And by the way, if you want to see how that works, watch the news. What's going on with this this ISIS group over there? Did you hear how you understand on this primitive level, this eye-for-an-eye, tooth-for-tooth, imposed law level, that in their mind, justice requires vengeance, If you don't take vengeance, you are unjust. This is how they view God, that he is coming back to take vengeance upon his enemies. And this is the God they're waiting for when Satan comes impersonating him and has all this might and power to hurt people that don't do it. They're going to go, praise God, this is our God, we waited for him. Yeah. During those Rwanda killings, didn't they pause to pray in the midst of the killing? Right in the middle of the, right in the middle of the, the machete hacking people's heads off, they would stop and take communion and pray and praise God and get up and smack and cut some more people's heads off. Seriously. This is what they did. Why? Because they viewed God as this thing. This is what God does. We, if we're godly, we'll do this. By beholding, we become changed. Um, I'm, we're not going to have time to go into it, but I'm going to leave you with some questions. Because the, the Tuesday's lesson is about the seventh commandment, adultery. I'm going to leave you with some questions to grapple with on this one. We won't have time to, we don't have four minutes left. Um, but what is adultery is the big question. What is adultery? The lesson starts out very nicely and points out that um, the Israelites consider adultery only to be f- the overt physical 
sexual act with another person's spouse. Jesus points out that in reality, because the 10th commandment, adultery would include lustful thoughts and desires as well. They start out very nicely. I don't know what happened near the end, because near the end of the lesson, it says, Christ corrected the misuse of the passage by uplifting the sanctity and permanence of marriage. The only cause for divorce before God is sexual immorality and or fornication, the Greek word porneo, um, unchastity. So in the beginning, there's like, it's, it's more than an act. In the end, they're like, oh, it's just the act. So it was kind of, you know, contradictory. So in your mind, what is adultery? I think we're all pretty clear that someone who gets raped has not committed adultery, right? Clear on that? So it's something more than just a physical action. There has to be some mind, voluntary engagement, some choice on the part of the person for, for adultery to be involved. Okay, yes? I would say that a virgin who gets raped is still a virgin. Okay, yeah, I, I would agree with that because it's not about the body, it's about the character. Does a married soldier who's injured in combat and has lost his genitalia, uh, who was also married, leaves his wife, moves in with the nurse who's cared for him, loves her, sleeps with her, um, gives his heart to her, but can't commit physical fornication, is he committing adultery? Yes. He doesn't have the equipment, he can't do it. Is he committing adultery? Yeah. Just like David, when he looked at Bathsheba, if he looked away after a few seconds, he wouldn't have gone for it. Why were the Israelites called an adulterous nation? Was it only when they went to fertility cults that they were an adulterous nation? Or if they worshipped any false god, they were an adulterous nation? They were lusting after other gods and practicing. It wasn't about the body. It's about the heart, you're saying. Does a person whose spouse... Does a person whose spouse has committed adultery also commit adultery if they date someone else before the divorce is filed? I didn't say sleep with. I said date. When is marriage over? When the state says it is and you get your divorce certificate or when the individuals in their heart end it? Does God recognize the marriage certificates of homosexual couples? And if you say no, then why, does, why do we as a church say that the person is not divorced until the state issues a state certificate? Are we giving the state authority over what God recognizes? I have a patient who filed for divorce from her husband 18 years ago. 18 years ago. He's an attorney. He doesn't want the divorce. So he has held it up in court with all kinds of maneuvers and depositions and this thing and that thing and move it from one court and having a sickness and delay and blah, blah, blah. 18 years later, still not divorced. Should the church allow her to have a church, even though not state-recognized wedding, and marry somebody else, or should they say, no, you still have to wait till this for the state? What about in countries where polygamy is legal? Should the church wa- uh, recognize the marriage certificates of uh, the second, third, fourth, and fifth wife? Or should the church make a person who's got five wives divorce four of them when they get baptized in the church and throw them out on the street? <laughs> which has happened historically in our church. And those women have ended up as prostitutes because they couldn't get any other work to support their children. Or should the church say, no, you can keep your five wives and care for them? Like I said, I was going to leave you some questions. <laughs> our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a God of love. And we recognize in this world of sin, there's been a lot of damage. There's been a lot of damage. And as doctors sometimes have to amputate a gangrene leg to save the life. Sometimes divorces are necessary to save people. But it's not, your, it's not your ideal, and you'd much rather not it happen. Lord, may we understand your methods, your design, your principles, and enlighten us to move past rules that are designed for the children 
that we can live in harmony with you and the way you've created your universe to operate, preparing us to be witnesses for you and to meet you when you come. We pray in your holy name. Amen.